but it's a curiosity as to where we are, what we are. The existence, the physical universe, is basically playful. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello, Curious Humans. Today's conversation is with Marcella Ot-Alora. She's worked as the lead co-therapist and principal investigator for all of the MAPS, which, by the way, stands for Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. She's worked for their MDMA-assisted psychotherapy studies. And she's also been designing curriculum and training all of the therapists who are associated with MAPS. And in this conversation, which we recorded together in my home here in Boulder, Colorado, where she also happens to live, we explored how she found her way into this work over three decades ago, the tension I perceived between the clinical aspect of these studies and the sacredness of the work, details on how she trains therapists in this really rare art of being able to hold space for, for deep transformation, and what she believes is happening that has led to the extraordinary results that the MAPS trials have created to date, which includes a 71% reduction in otherwise untreatable symptoms of PTSD. Okay, well without any further ado, I hope you appreciate this thoughtful and heartfelt conversation with Marcella. I made the decision to work with sponsors for this podcast. And there are two main reasons for this. The first is that it helps me dedicate more time and resources to having deep dive conversations like this one and hopefully growing the show. And the second is that there are a few companies that have honestly made a big difference in my life. And since I consider them to be just such a huge value add, I'm genuinely excited to talk about what they offer and I hope they'll be useful to you as well. First up is Inside Tracker. One of the things that I've changed my mind on in the past year or so is the value of getting blood panels taken on a regular basis, ideally every six months, according to Dr. Peter Atia. This is opposed to waiting until you have an actual health issue. Inside Tracker tests your blood, your DNA, and they basically provide clear science-backed recommendations around nutrition, exercise, supplements, and lifestyle recommendations. They've also recently added hormone testing alongside a bunch of other really important biomarkers that aren't typically included in traditional blood panels, and APOB is a good example. And for myself, despite generally feeling pretty great, my most recent set of results showed that I have some pretty major work to do to reduce levels of inflammation. So. I'll be following some of their dietary and supplement recommendations to hopefully address this. So I really recommend making this something that you make time for at least once or twice per year. And you can save 20% at insidetracker.com forward slash curious humans. That's insidetracker.com forward slash curious humans. Next up, we have The Plunge. I reached out to the founder of The Plunge, Ryan, after hearing his personal story on Danny Miranda's podcast. And I've shared many times how getting in icy cold water every day helps me to move through some pretty intense grief in the past. And it taught me what it meant to surrender. And these days I use their plunge pretty much every single day. It's, it's basically like a high stakes meditation or a, a mirror to my own internal state. And the Plunge team have done a phenomenal job architecting what I really consider to be the best cold plunge in the world. And it doesn't get grimy, unlike the, the converted chest freezers that I used to use. And for optimal health benefits, I recommend doing this deliberate cold exposure for about 11 minutes per week in total. And if you're interested, you can save $150 on their full unit at plunge.com forward slash curious. That's plunge.com forward slash curious. And this episode is brought to you by the one and only Nervous System Mastery. This is my flagship five-week bootcamp designed to equip you with evidence-backed protocols to cultivate calm, conquer reactivity, and build emotional regulation. Our fourth cohort will be running in April 2024, and applications are open right now. And my sense is that if this conversation and others like it on the podcast resonate with you, 
then you'd likely be a great fit for the upcoming cohort. This curriculum represents my attempt to distill everything that I've learned in recent years about how to create the conditions for our nervous systems flourishing. It's run in an intensive cohort-based way. Since this is, in my experience, the most efficient way to not only learn the information, but also embody the protocols in your everyday life. Previous students have shared how taking part not only improved their sleep, the quality of their relationships, but also tap into deeper states of joy, clarity, and confidence in their lives. We've had over 750 students complete this training, and many have said it's been the most impactful thing they've ever done for their personal growth. So if you're intrigued at all, you can find out more details and apply to join the next cohort at nsmastery.com. That's nsmastery.com. Welcome to the Curious Humans podcast, Marcella. Thank you. How are you feeling in this moment in three words? Mm. Well, I would say heartbroken is one of them. Just being in the world that we are right now feels very heartbreaking and grateful as well. And working with awareness would be another one. Awareness of how to hold all of it together. Beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, the question that I love to begin these conversations with is, were you an exceptionally curious child? And if so, can you remember something that you were curious about? Mm. It's an interesting thing, curiosity, because one of the things that I say about trauma, when people have been traumatized, they are robbed of curiosity. Mm. And that there's a lack of curiosity, which is how then it's hard to be in the world in the present moment because the all the system, the internal system is programmed to protect. And so curiosity kind of goes out the window. So I think that I'm really interested in what happens when curiosity is lost and when curiosity is regained and how when there's curiosity we're engaged with other people and we're engaged with the world at large and so i think in terms of a child i think i was i don't know if i would have been it called it curiosity but i think it was a sense of being connected to something that i didn't understand I think I was curious if it was if it's curiosity curious about how to hold on to something that could not be defined or explained so I think a little bit about uh, lineage you know ancestry being connected to my ancestors being connected to something that was there and wasn't there so I think I was curious about that Beautiful. And um, maybe this is a big question, but how do you think that we regain our curiosity for, for those who've lost it? Yeah. I think we regain it by beginning to have an intimate relationship with ourselves. When we begin to understand that, that there's room, that there's actually room to bring in an awareness of the present moment, to be curious about another human being, for instance, to be in relationship with another person and to understand how nourishing that is, right? So I think it begins to come back by an awareness of the nourishment that it gives you to be curious, to not be always in the same story, that once we step away from that story that we think is protecting us or not necessarily protecting us, but keeping us alive, in essence, then when we loosen the grip on that story and we become curious about something else, how amazing that is. Like even to just talk to somebody who tells you a story about them that you're like, wow, like I, that is amazing, right? Like just, it could be something really, really simple, how that just nourishes the, the spirit, right? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I really resonate with that. And um, this may be a big question, but what was your personal journey to 
to end up working with maps and working with MDMA assisted psychotherapy. I, I imagine my my guess is that there was some dark night of the soul type experience that led you into this work. And I'm, I'm curious what that was. Yeah, I think I was fortunate enough to be able to do MDMA assisted therapy for specifically for trauma. And it was the beginning of that curiosity of like actually really feeling like, wow, like I can be in this present moment and still be able to to focus on something that happened before. And I could enjoy the sun, like the sun on my face in that moment. It's like, wow, like that is unbelievable to me. Like just being connected to both, being connected to a sense of my own narrative of how I had kind of organized my life around my experiences and then being open to something completely different. I think it was the first time that I understood that there was a possibility to hold both. And that's what really led me to think how important this is, mm. could be for some people. Yeah. And was it your experiences with, with Rick that, or, or the specifically experiences with MGMA that kind of gave you that new perspective, do you think? Or? Yes, I think it was, it was a sense of possibility, I think. Possibility that I had never had before. Mm. A sense of, I think it's, it's the understanding that I had lost curiosity, which I didn't know, right? It's like, oh, I did lose something really big, but I didn't know about it. I didn't know I... Right. It was too much, I was too programmed to be in, the, in life the way I was that I didn't understand it as a lack of curiosity. And so I think it was the realization that there was a lack of not being in the present moment, except for very, very few moments. And then having those moments be amplified, right? Like being able to say, I can actually feed those moments. And, you know, so it wasn't like that I didn't have them. It was that I wasn't connected to them. And then I was able to be grateful for them and actually know that I had that experience, that I've, that I've always had that experience of being present at moments and how, how amazing that is, how beautiful that is. Yeah, it's, it's a gift for sure. Yes, it is. And, and how did that then lead you to working as a, as a therapist and, and working with MAPS? So I think it was the beginning of me, you know, at the time I was an art teacher and it still took me many years. I went, I went to art school, I got an MFA, I, I still continued teaching art and in the back of my mind, always holding that place of, I want to do this, I want to be ready for this. If it ever becomes available, I want, this is the work I want to do. And I worked a lot with art and trauma, which has that component of of a non-ordinary state of being able to go deep into something that maybe we don't even understand and that doesn't need any words. So I worked with inner city children talking about their trauma through art. And so I was already having that experience. And then I went back to school so that I could become a therapist and learn more and be able to support, sort of in a way, be ready. I wanted to be ready. <laughs> Well, it sounds like you, you managed that feat. And we were just speaking before we hit record here around uh, how you helped to design the curriculum, it sounds like, for the next generation of therapists. I'm really curious how that curriculum evolved and maybe what were some of the, the inspirations or, or what were some of the pieces that, that went together to create this? Mm -hmm. So it involved, you know, several people that at the time MAPS was pretty small, but there were several of us really working towards it is how do you, the, it's, a, it's a beautiful question really, it's like how do you teach something that doesn't always have words that you can't always identify and describe? So in a sense, going back to that question that you asked me about childhood, that it was, I had that knowledge already of trying to define something that couldn't be defined and understand something on a deeper level somewhere inside of me. And I also understood that 
it would be really hard that some people would go, no, where are the facts? Like, you know, and that people would say, what is this thing and that you're trying to say? So I knew that there was also that we were up against something that we couldn't just that that we did need to come up with words, mm-hmm. right? In order to in order to to, Can be to helpful, teach yeah. it. <laughs> and and how do you do that, right? Like how do you how do you put together the words without taking away the integrity of something that feels very sacred? You know, how do you do that? And if you think about how people have done that for generations about spirituality and religion and and that it can get lost, right? It can get lost and it can become very dogmatic and it can become so something that it's not. So I think we all were very focused on how to keep bringing that back. Oh, you, we're going too far out. How do we bring it back to what really is the core of this work and what is happening to the individual when they do MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, right? How do you combine these two, these two forces and what is important about that. So I think it was a lot of talk around that, of what are the elements that we need to bring in? What are the principles that we need to emphasize and that we need to work on? So it's, it's challenging to do something that feels, can become really intellectual with something that's actually not that intellectual. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And uh, what are, in your opinion, some of the maybe the conditions that need to be present in order to, to create the space for the types of shifts, transformative shifts that patients experience in this guided MDMA setting. And when you say that, do you say for the therapist or for the participant? Actually, actually both. I'd be curious to hear both, yeah. Like what are the conditions? The conditions which the therapist is able to create such that mm-hmm. the patient is able to have some of these profound realizations or transformations? Mm, I think one of the biggest ones that we always talk about is how can we be okay with not knowing in the moment? How can we be okay with not needing to fill in when we don't know and actually create the space for the not knowing, and that it's in that space of not knowing that we begin to understand no. But it's really difficult to sit in that space and sit still and not say something. You know, we're trained to, if you're the expert, right, or if you're the person who knows, then you're supposed to know and you're supposed to say it and you're supposed to have the answer and you're supposed to guide. And I think many of us learned therapy that way, right? Like, you are the person that needs to help this individual achieve something. And this, in some ways, it's not that, you know, I don't like this idea of that, that we need to unlearn, but it's more how do, can we learn further and then say, what happens if I actually don't know, you know? And how beautiful that is to be able to sit with another human being and both not know. And if we trust that, then we get very far. We can get far. It sounds like you're describing curiosity. <laughs> mm. Yes. Yes. Yeah, curiosity without an agenda, without any need to get somewhere. That's exactly it. I mean, we are full of agendas, right? And so it's not about, you know, that's another piece. It's like, oh, how do we need to not have an agenda, but we always have an agenda. If there's somebody in front of me I want them not to suffer as much as they're suffering. I do want healing for them. That is an agenda, right? And so how do I hold that and not let it get in the way of what's actually happening in the moment? That I can hold all these different forces. I can hold even my knowledge of what I think is going on. I can hold that. So it's not about getting rid of it or saying that I don't have it. The same with my agenda. The same with my biases and my judgment of the person in front of me, because those happen automatically. You know, they happen automatically. The person comes into the room and you already have a story about them without, before you even know, before you even know you already have it, you have it. And so how do we hold all that and then come back to the center of 
if I'm being guided by all these forces and all my experiences in my life, and in addition to that, I don't know. Mm. Yeah, it's almost like expanding your awareness or expanding the space to hold all of it at the same time. To hold it all, to not get rid of something. Right, that's beautiful. And um, one thing that I'm curious about is, how have you seen MDMA to contribute to the work that you and, and these other therapists are doing in this space? And, and maybe a way of answering this is, is what was the difference that you, know, you noticed in the trials between the patients that took MDMA versus those who took a placebo? Did those who took a placebo, I imagine they still experienced some degree of, of healing from having this, you know, this attention and these principles and, and this, this guided work. Um, so, so how do you view the, the role of MDMA in maybe amplifying? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, placebo, we, we've gotten some very good results with placebo. I think in the last study, it was like 48%, which is huge. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, mean, that's amazing. <laughs> yes, it is amazing. Versus 71%. And that was 48% of? Placebo. But w- what does the 48% refer to? So for the participants who received placebo initially, so in the studies, those people who received placebo went through the whole trial or part of it, and then could come back and do MDMA work. But this is just with the placebo arm. We had that, those results. But it's still versus 71%. And, and that was 48% of people with some symptoms of PTSD. Oh, with, yeah. They still had to meet criteria for moderate to severe PTSD. And they, that 48% of them were then significantly improved. Yes. Following. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They no longer met criteria for a diagnosis of PTSD. Right. So it's still a big difference between, it's still, it's great, it's amazing, which really shows around about the relationship, how important relationship is, and being able to really be with someone, totally, fully be with an, another human being and, and dedicate our attention to them. But it's still a big difference between that and the people who did better with MDMA. So I think part of it is that if you think of MDMA as another entity in the room, you know, another, here's another piece in the room. So we have two therapists and a participant, and we have MDMA, and we have music, and we have this setting that creates this container. So there's a lot of forces there to then create a space for all the things that come in, which are other people, right? Possibly ancestors, possibly experiences that come in, other people, people who have harmed us, who have harmed the participant, right? So it's like very crowded. It becomes a really crowded space. But at the same time, we're focused on MDMA is there to support the participant to come back to themselves and come back to being present because the nervous system is not so activated because they get the message. The nervous system is, even if I'm really upset, I'm actually capable of going through this experience and I'm capable of being curious about what's there that I have not looked at, that at other times I've turned away from because it's too scary. So I think that the conditions that MDMA puts in place just physiologically, really help the participant because they're not so focused on that activation of the nervous system, then they're able to see what else is there instead of just the, the panic, right? The panic of like something's happening and I, 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 don't want, I don't want it to happen. But it's more like that could be happening. It could be panic. It could, and it, it definitely can be a lot of suffering. But there's also a lot of other things that are there to support it. So it's very resource rich. Yeah, it it sounds like what you're describing is all of these individual pieces from the other therapists, from the safe set and setting, the MDMA, even the music, they are maybe temporarily increasing their nervous system capacity so that they can hold the fullness of these experiences, which on their own, they wouldn't be able to hold. Right. Is that that accurate? Yes, that it would be 
that it just is what gets in the way, right? I can only go so far and then I'm too afraid. I'm going to just burn if I, you know, die, like something horrible is going to happen if I go beyond that point. So I stop myself. And so with MDMA, it's like, oh, there is actually a door there that I can walk through if I want to, right? There is a lot of self-agency of really making a choice and saying, yes, I can go through here. And what else is there? You know, what else is, what is behind this place that I have never looked at before? Because in my mind, the only thing I can think of is that it's something horrible and maybe even worse than what I remember and worse than what I can imagine. When in reality, we've been also holding off a lot of beautiful things, right? right? We've been protecting ourselves from a lot of beauty and a lot of, a lot of joy as well. Yeah, that's, that's beautifully said. But the way that I conceptualize it in my mind is that it's like for these people, their, their window of tolerance it really shrinks. And that if even for a short period of time that can be expanded, there is so much more capacity for, for feeling and experiencing the full spectrum of emotions and experience, which previously would have felt, as you say, too overwhelming or just too much to even, even look at. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you used the word sacred, which is interesting to me because I'm curious how that, that orientation is layered in with the, you know, the very scientific approach of the MAPS trials and the, you know, the clinical setting, which to me almost feels, it feels like there's a tension there between what might be considered a sacred versus clinical. How do you think about that? Hmm. Well, I think that, I can't remember the person who said, Research is an organized type of wonder. So it's adding the wonder, right? That it, it's not void of the wonder and that that sacredness is in that wondering. And so by creating a space that feels, that doesn't feel clinical, right? And also by knowing that the participant is, they come first before anything. So we have this research that has all these restrictions and has a lot of rules and a lot of things that you need to follow and that that's really important and that has its own sacredness because of what it's creating, what we're trying to understand, right? It's the science is helping us understand it. And so that in itself is sacred. And that at the same time, it's not either or, it's and, and. It's like, that's part of it. And added to that is also then just how sacred it is to be with another human being in their vulnerability, in their complete honesty and authenticity, no matter what that is and no matter how challenging that can be. So there's something sacred in that, right? And so the minute that you add that component of this is a space where vulnerability is shared and a sense of wonder, then they're, they go hand in hand. I think they can go hand in hand. That's beautiful. Yeah, great answer. <laughs> and then another curiosity I have is, uh, I, I believe I read that there've been 1,700 patients go through the, the MAPS trials to date. What in that pretty monumental journey and research effort has, has surprised you? Or what have you found interesting over the course of, of this research? What have you seen that's been interesting? I always think about the word resilience, but I think it's more than that, is what human beings are made of. Like how amazing it is that that place in us that is our own wisdom is intact and it just needs a space but it really is intact. And that is incredible. You know, that is incredible that if you sit with long enough, no matter how you feel about yourself, that you can begin to touch that place in you. And that is what I think makes people resilient in some way. It's mind-blowing that people can go through horrendous challenges and they can still smell a flower and think it's a, an amazing smell. They still are connected to something that 
is beautiful and expansive and connecting, right? No matter how small, it's just like, how do we then nourish that and begin to open that up? Just that little moment of like, yes, you're connected to this. Yes, this is a beautiful moment. And how do we, that you can still do that. It's amazing to me. Yeah, wow. So you sense that, like, what's arising for me is that people who've been through some of these intense experiences, that not only, you know, are they resilient in the sense that they're able to then find their curiosity and wonder, but that there's almost, or sometimes, you know, even more depth or even more capacity to, to love or to be in intimacy on the other side. Is that something that you've witnessed? Do you think that can be the case as well? Definitely to find parts of ourselves that we didn't know before, maybe, that we weren't in touch with before, that create possibility of being more three-dimensional, like beginning to have parts of ourselves that have been very flattened and maybe even we're not aware of them. And then when they begin to have form, right, like they begin to be three-dimensional and they begin to say like, wow, yes, here's this part of me that has been wounded, or here's this part of me that I don't like at all, that I might hate, right? Or how I don't feel like I belong. And then here's this other part. There's this other part that is emerging that, huh, it's there. Like this, there's something I can begin to nourish. I can begin to give voice to. I can begin to allow to have a voice, right? Allow to teach me something about myself, something about the world, something about connection. So I think it's this place of connection, really, right? It's about how do we connect? How do we connect when we've come from a place of being completely disconnected because that's the only way to survive? And because society tells us that that's what we need to do, that we need to disconnect. And we do need to disconnect to some extent, you know? Like I I mentioned that like the first word that came to me was being heartbroken. And I think the dilemma is that we do need to disconnect from the pain that's happening in the world in order to content be about our day and go to work and do this. And how do we not disconnect so much that then we're disconnected and we're no longer a part of being uh, together and suffering together and knowing that this is a suffering of the world and that we can connect to that and still do these other things. So I think it's a balance of how much do we disconnect to live our lives. And I think people that have had a lot of trauma disconnect completely and disconnect completely because it's just too painful and too dangerous and too hard for various other reasons, right? And then when we begin to understand that, that in that disconnection, we've thrown away all the other parts too. Mm-hmm. The joy and the yeah, we just throw, the positive yeah, things. All that is also gone. And so what is the balance? How do we stay connected to the suffering and the pain and how difficult that is and disconnect at times from it because we can't be in it 24-7 but not disconnect so much that we don't feel each other, right? Yeah, yeah, beautifully put. You mentioned bef- again before we hit record that uh, you're part of, you're one of four therapists who have been tasked with training the, the next generation of MAPS psychotherapists. And that to me sounds like, uh, I know like an incredibly like, daunting, daunting task in some ways. I'd love to know both how you've approached that kind of like designing that curriculum to create a container to, to I guess, forge therapists that are capable of holding people in some of their, their darkest moments. And what are some of the, the traits that you've noticed of the people who go on to become like really exceptional therapists? Like not only just, you know, safe and, and have good results, but like, like truly kind of amazing at, at what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think at the beginning we started this uh, training kind of like we started the trainings going, trying things, right? Trying things and what works and what doesn't work and 
how do we bring things in and how do we each have our own skills of being ourselves, right? Like being real and being um, offering of ourselves as well as who we are as individuals. So for me as an artist, I, I bring a lot of art to the process of trying to connect to who we are. And I, I mean, I think for the therapists that do this work so uh, well that we've seen in the trials, it comes to, it comes back to humility, I think, a sense of humility to this daunting thing, right? Like to this powerful, beautiful thing, painful thing that we don't fully understand, but that we can be with. And so is about people who are engaged with their own understanding of themselves, who do a lot of work on on that process as well, and who are not there to necessarily help somebody else, but that they're, we're here to help each other, right? That we're learning alongside and we're getting so much information and so much learning from our participant that we're there to also be exposed to what's available and that then that there's enough work and enough uh, self-reflection to understand what do I need to do now and how do I need to improve on my own knowledge about myself so that I can bring that forward and not let it get in the way. Totally. Could you speak to how you just mentioned it, like or what I took from that was how someone's desire to help another might get in the way of their ability to actually be a be useful. Yes. I think when we think, okay, I'm here to help, and I think we all are, and what does that mean exactly? You know, does help mean you get to live the life that you want to live or you get to arrive at this place that I think you need to be at because this is what is going to help you be in the world in a, a different place. So it's more that the help is, how do I share from my own knowledge? How do I share what I'm seeing as a way to rise curiosity? Is that right or is that not? Or help me understand so that we're there more as having the participant help us understand where they're at and what they need and that we can be the words that maybe they don't have you know in any particular moment it's like how do we bring awareness to what they're presenting that they might not even know they're presenting right so it's looking for the nuances that are there that don't have anything to do with me but have everything to do with me as well because I'm in the room and because I'm being affected by them. And so constantly saying, where is this coming from? And how is it in the service of them deepening their process? So constantly being able to, to ask, that, ask ourselves that question, you know, is this, whose service is this about? Like, is this in service of them? Or is this in service of me? Or is this in service of some idea that I think needs to happen, right? And I think that can be really challenging, especially when somebody's suffering. Because when somebody's suffering, we don't want them to suffer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, I guess you have like an implicit agenda for them in that moment of like not wanting them to be in whatever pain they're in. Yes, and how dishonoring that is actually. Mm -hmm. Because... This is what they are in this moment. This is what they're showing me is their pain and how me trying to take it away is not being present and not honoring what they're feeling it. And so then it becomes about me because I can't, it's too difficult for me to hold it. Right. So I, I imagine some aspect of the training is creating the conditions for the therapists to experience their own grief, heartbreak, pain, hurt, so that if those emotions arise in people they're working with, they can sit with them. Yes. And that is not an easy thing to do. It's not. How do you, how do, you do it? <laughs> I think by 
you know, I mean, I've said this many times before that one of the ways that we can not be afraid of somebody's pain is by not being afraid of our own, right? Not being afraid of our own pain. And how can we know, oh, here I'm in pain. I'm trying to get away from it. How do I sit with it and let it be there and understand it from this place of like feeling like it's going to break me and it's still my pain. And if somebody's there to take it away, then I can't, it's sort of um, putting a, putting a, a big boulder in the road, right? It Temporarily it might help, but it's not really what's happening. You know, it's not, you know, I think it's like I, I was, I did a lot of work yesterday and just started cleaning and like sorting things and like all over the house, getting rid of things. And I'm like, why am I doing this? <laughs> and I realized today that it was, I was trying to get away from heartbreak and I didn't quite understand it at the time. So we do it all the time, right? Like we do it. And so, oh, that's what was happening. That's why I'm so sore today. Like I wouldn't stop. I just kept going, 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 you know, cleaning out, doing this. And, and then realizing there was the nag, there was the heartbreak right there, right there. But I just could not look at it and could not face it. And it's like, that's what I was doing. Okay. And so if we can understand that and then we can support somebody in being, staying with it, saying, could this, like if I had listened far enough, my inner wisdom could have said, could this going neurotic about cleaning the space in this moment and driving yourself to like total exhaustion, could it be that you don't want to look at this? Could it be? How can I support you in being with it instead? So if we can understand it when it's happening to us, then we can understand and be curious about what is happening to them and really know that makes perfect sense, makes perfect sense why we want to get away from it and how actually divine it is to stay with it. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Sounds like all roads are leading to curiosity. <laughs> and, and I think that, that raises an interesting follow-up question which is how do you practice self-care for yourself I, I know that burnout is quite common in the therapy world what are things that you do for yourself to make sure that you have sufficient space to feel things which may have been brought up through these sessions and uh, what are things that you recommend to the people that you're training hmm. well i think that there's a difference between that we do need to be careful which is, I want to care for myself, to nourish myself, and to be able to be present for another human being. And I also need to not hold everything inside that I'm hearing, because then that'll burn me out. And how do I know the difference that if am I sort of like blocking something and not getting the, what am I trying to say? like? Am I detaching? Am I detaching because I'm burned out? Or am I detaching because I need to in order to nourish myself and self-care? And so I think it's about how do we allow things to come in and hold them deeply and somebody else's experience deeply and also allow it to go back into the world, to go back into the earth transmuted in some way and as compassion, as empathy, as love, as caring. And so allowing sort of that cycle, I think self-care is about not detaching from it, but allowing it to come in and not stay put, but completing the cycle, kind of like what trees do. What, right. You know, what nature does, what Tung Len. Tung Len, I just thought of Tung Len. Yeah, like inhaling suffering, exhaling, exhaling peace. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really beautiful perspective. So uh, another curiosity that I have, and feel free not to answer this, but um, I'm aware that you know, a number of people that I, that I know, friends, are looking for underground 
psychedelic assisted therapists. And I'm wondering if you'd be open to sharing what in your mind would be some red flags for people to look out to. I, I'm not saying that people should do this, but if they are seeking that, what would be some kind of almost like definite uh, hesitations in your mind? Because I, I think it's important for the capacity to discern between someone who is experienced in in this work versus someone who might just be, you know, posting on Facebook or or just or or have a a false sense of confidence in their capacity to be with things that they maybe haven't experienced for themselves. Boy, that's such a hard question. Mostly because I think that, you know, when we criminalize something, there's this huge danger, right, of then things going underground. I mean, like we know the war on drugs have not, has not worked at all and has actually harmed so many people, especially marginalized. People have been marginalized. And so when we do that, then we can't track. And we don't know. We don't, we can't. I mean, I suppose there's word of mouth and people can say, oh, this person is good or this person is not good. Or, but it's so much harder, right? That if we could work as a community to then support each other and keep each other safe. So it just creates this, this sense of being alone in it, right? The, the criminalization has done that, being alone in it and needing to manage so many things that would be so much more helpful with a team of community, with community. And, and that there's such a fear then on both sides, right? People doing community work have a fear, right? They are risking, they're doing all this hiding in a way, right? And then the other, and the people seeking it also have to hide and also have to not be able to, to really ask all the questions that need to be asked that could be supported by the community of like, these are the words, this is what you ask for. Like, if you think about going to a therapist, I always recommend to people like, here's the questions you ask when you are looking for a new therapist, right? Like we have all these ways that we can support each other. And I think when you do something that is not legal, then it gets in the way, all those ways get in the way. They don't get to people. They don't get to the people that need it the most. And so unfortunately, I think there's a sense of needing to trust some other person, right? I, I need to trust this other person that is telling me that, yes, do this, or this is the right way, the right, right path to go. And it's risky. It's risky. And I understand why people do it, right? I understand why that's important. And that hopefully there's still communities that are there to support and can give voice to who are the people to stay away from, who are the people that have a good reputation. And, you know, so I just think it's very sad. It makes it really challenging, I think. So you're adding this element of danger and fear to something that it already feels scary. And, you know, we talked about the container. One of the most beautiful things about research is that, that even though it has these regulations and rules and things that you need to follow that can get in the way in some ways, it also provides this sense of safety and sen sense of being able to, for everybody to support each other and know what it is that we're doing, be accountable for that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So I, on that note, another thing that I'm interested in is what are some of the pieces that, maybe this is part of the protocol, but how would you prepare patients for these journeys and how do you also assist with with the integration of the journey as well because i think that's that's another piece that is also missing especially for people who do you know, self-guided journeys things like that is i sense there's inadequate care or due diligence given to the the preparation and the integration phases as being like an integral part of the of the experience yes i mean i think preparation the session itself and the integration are all equally important. The medicine session is not the most important piece that is part of the process that needs to happen and that you can't really separate them, separate any of those three. That the preparation is really about building that relationship, which 
that it's the relationship that is going to create a sense of trust, a sense of being able to, and that is not necessarily that you, I trust this person completely, but it's a brave enough space, right? It's a, it's a space where I can be brave enough to bring some of this of myself to it. And how do you create that? And you create that through preparation and through being able to be in relationship and being able to really ask with curiosity the questions that need to be asked about another human being so that I can begin to dispel my own biases about them and my own judgments about them. So here's my judgment. Here's my bias. Now can I know, can I lean in to find out who this person is? How do they function in the world? What is important to them? What are their strengths? What do they most fear? Who is family for them? What is traumatic about the trauma? Mm. What has been traumatic in their lives? What is traumatic about the trauma? That's an interesting question. Yes. What is, what, that's what we're really there to find out because somebody can have an experience and it can be in the past, but how has that actually impacted your life and what is traumatic about it now? And so... In the preparation of that, we need time. You know, we need the time to really get to know some of those things, important questions that we can ask, and then begin to build that relationship. And then you have the sessions that are with MDMA and how that breaks open, right? All this information and all these experiences that begin to happen. And then the integration is, how do you bring that back? How do you understand that, right? How do you understand these things that are happening to you that maybe you never even thought that you had this part of you that is wise? And how do you function in the world now? I mean, so many times participants have said, like, how at some point, like, in the healing process that, you know, we think healing is always good and it's always positive, and it can be really challenging. It can be really hard. And so they'll, you know, they'll say things like, how am I supposed to be in the world without PTSD? I have no idea because it's all I know. And so that's the integration. Because if we don't have that and we don't provide the support around that, then it can be an amazing experience that I have no idea how to hold and no idea how to actually integrate into my system and be able to know that it's now it's a difficult, now it's the task. Now it's a really challenging task. How do I understand it and begin to make those changes in myself through those knowledges that I've discovered, those insights, those felt sense that I've felt during the, tra- during the session, and then be able to apply it to my life, to the, my community, to the world. So integration is absolutely essential if we are going to then do something with it to get those that those experiences and do something with them instead of it being like a trophy on the mantle. <laughs> mm. Yeah, as you were saying that, I could almost imagine there being a need for like another session to process the grief of losing the identity of being someone who has PTSD and how that could be a whole journey in, in itself if that's something that someone's lived with for most of their life. Yes. And, you know, in the trials we did three times, right? But Three sessions. Three se- so we did three preparatory sessions and then a medicine session, eight-hour session, and then three integrative sessions, and then another medicine session, three integrative sessions, another medicine session. So we do that throughout the course. People are there for maybe between five and six months, hmm. four and a half. So that is that like 16, 17 visits in total? I think it's 20, well, it's 20 sessions in total, okay. but that also includes, you know, assessments that they have to do and things like that. But it's about building on it, building on it, building on it, and knowing that at every turn you discover new things. It's like, oh, here is this new thing. Maybe I won't have a time to work on this and the trial is over. What are my resources to be able to do it on my own? You know, that in the end, it's about not needing the therapist, right? Like being able to say, I have what it takes. I've learned what it takes to be able to face these things that are happening to me at the moment that maybe I hadn't looked at before, right? So that takes time. It takes time to actually understand that I do have the resource to do that and to begin to 
to have a new a new way of coping, right? And when we leave a way of coping that maybe wasn't so well, that has a huge price tag on our lives, then there's a space there that feels really scary, which is if I'm not going to use that and I still don't know what my new ones are, I'm in limbo here and how scary is that and that that takes time. So I think, you know, when people say, can, can we just make this, can we just speed this up? Can we, <laughs> can, we, can we do it a little quicker? Can we do that? It's not. It takes time. Yeah, I, I really resonate with all of that. And something that I love about what you just shared is there's a very, it seems like there's a very empowering narrative behind this form of treatment, which I think is in uh, contrast to the current paradigm of healthcare, where people you know, go to the doctor when they're sick, and then the doctor or the, the medication that they're prescribed heals them. Whereas what you just said is like, you want them to get to a point where they, they don't need your help. Like they have sufficient resource and capacity to, to move through these pieces on their own. And that actually feels like a, almost like a fun, like a radical shift in how people even think about healthcare. Yeah, because I think it comes from a felt sense instead of an intellectual understanding. There are so many people that have PTSD that can come in and tell you exactly what they've been told and what they think needs to happen. And it's pretty accurate, right? And, but, but it's all intellectual. And so it, there's not a felt sense of it. So that when you have a felt sense, you don't forget that. You know, I, I don't forget the felt sense that I had when my grandmother held me. And the last time she held me was 45 years ago. I do not re forget that. And so it was a felt sense of what that was like, what the warmth of that was, what the smell of that was, how my senses were around that. And so when we have a felt sense, then we can use that and we can expand on that, right? And I think that's part of what this work can create is a sense of like, oh, I knew it in my head, but now I actually feel it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and it sounds like you and, and MAPS are also bringing in a much more somatic-based approach to therapy, where, as far as I'm aware, a lot of people are familiar with talk therapy, CBT, things like that, but practices like Hakomi, somatic experiencing, NAM, certain forms of breathwork still feel like they're much more emergent. Right. And it sounds like the somatic component is a large part of, of how you guide people through these these experiences. Yes, because trauma is somatic dysregulation. And so how do we bring that dysregulation in, understand it, and begin to regulate it? Begin to really feel that I can, I can, my body is actually not only, you know, they, I can be removed from my body when I'm there. A lot of people with PTSD and trauma are removed from their body to like, I have a body to be in a body, you know, I am, I, I am part of this and how do I listen to the information that it's given me and how incredibly wise our bodies are. <laughs> and that it's, you know, it's always been there, right? It's always been there. I've always had it. I just have, didn't have access to it, which is why integration is so important. Mm, beautiful. And for, for people listening who let's say that like this conversation has sparked some curiosities either from the perspective of you know maybe looking to potentially train as a therapist one day or to potentially experience one of these sessions at some point in the, in the future what would be some resources books maybe some of the studies on maps that you might point them to to kind of educate themselves further mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think the MAPS website has a lot of resources in it that um, people can look at and can understand, you know, can read more about if they want to. And that's maps.org. Yes. And then also papers. I mean, there's so much that has been written about MDMA and so many people that have done so many studies with safety, with this or that, right? And so ours is, is part of that. And looking at those papers is really important. But I also think there's a sense of how do you begin to understand this concept of being open to the unknown about ourselves? And how do we understand relationships? 
and that that can come from a lot of different sources, not just psychology books or papers written about trials or so it's more like where do you get what inspires you to understand the human race and understand human relationships and understand how we work together and what disconnects us and what connects us back and what is vulnerable right like that we can look through that by things that we are interested in and not by things we're not interested in because if it's not things that we're not interested in it is going to be this mental thing that is not going you know might have some meaning for sure but where else can we look to so i would recommend that you do that but also do a lot of inquiry into the spirit into the the connections that we are as human beings mm-hmm. well said well said well i'm um, i'm conscious of time i'd love to ask a few rapid fire questions and then we'll we'll wrap things up okay uh, the first question is what do you see as the most common barrier to healing in a psychedelic session flight to health when it's like i have this good experience and i'm that's it huh don't need anything else so like abandoning integration because they think that they've healed yeah that there is a sense of i think the barrier is the this maybe this idea that we need to heal so fast that things need to happen really fast and we live in this society that things are fast right we don't take the time we don't take the time to slow down and that it is about slowing down so i do see that as something that cannot be avoided like what if you think about this work and you can't really compromise it with time like can't make it shorter really I need to spend the time to integrate and to understand this and it might take me I don't know how long it might take me but I need to do that before I can move forward into really incorporating it into my life and that we can't rush that we just can't I mean it's just not going to work it becomes something else so I think this idea of like I got this information and now I'm like I'm there I'm done I'm cure is a word that comes up which i never use <laughs> you know i don't like to use the word cure because we're never cured you can't be cured, cured of something of the, of the that human condition <laughs> yeah and you can't be cured of something that has happened to you in your life that you've experienced you can't be cured of that you're never going to be okay with it you're never going to think something wonderful when that heartbreak comes up right the heartbreak comes up because the heartbreak is there yeah i didn't write this question down but it just just came up how does someone know if they if they have integrated something fully like like are there any indications that someone could track in themselves that they've given they've given themselves sufficient time to to integrate whatever arises i think when we have the awareness that my old patterns are coming back or are present it's like oh this is an old pattern this is an old story okay that is there and is part of me and is part of what i've done and what is a new one you know like what what is it that i'm working on what is it that i'm so i don't think integration ever is over you know it continues forever but i think it's more around how do we constantly learn from it how do we constantly learn that oh there it is like like my experience like i had no idea yesterday what i was doing until this morning and this morning i realized and i went da well i could have maybe had that at 9:00 in the morning and saved myself a lot of pain in my body but i didn't but then it's like oh but i did the next day that's good so that's part of integration is that i actually am aware and do become aware of a pattern that has been ingrained for many generations past and that is always going to keep coming up but how do i bring awareness to it and make space to then also be with my knowledge of what i learned yeah i imagine it's reassuring for people listening that someone like yourself who's had hundreds maybe thousands of sessions of experience still forgets that like in those types of oh, moments <laughs> all the time all the time is we're always going to learn and 
I am so grateful for that. I'm so grateful that I'm not an expert, that I do want to keep learning, that I do, that the world, that my part, my clients, my participants have always continued to teach me about what I don't know. Yeah, it sounds like that humility piece that you, that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, and um, if you were to describe the work you do with MAPS to a curious 12-year-old, what might you say? I would say, do you want to explore more about who you are and be in touch with all the parts of you, all the parts of you that are welcomed here, all the parts? And I know you're not allowed to talk about the future, but uh, do you hold a, an aspiration or vision for the work that you're doing with MAPS in the coming years or decades? Yes. I mean, I definitely, definitely want this work to become available for beyond research. That is definitely my dream. And that we won't have succeeded if it's not available to people who need it the most then we won't have succeeded either. So accessibility is very important. Mm, beautiful. Well, this has been such a pleasure. Marcella, thank you so much. I've, I've really enjoyed this. Is there anywhere that you would like to point listeners to to learn more? I know we've already mentioned maps.org and I, know, I believe there are some courses that are appearing on there as well. Anything else at all that you'd like to direct to listeners to? Yeah, I think that they're, you know, to be looking in there for different courses right now, there's a lot of different organizations and different ways to to do to do workshops and to take classes and to explore it more i mean we have so much more available now than we've ever had before so it's like checking it out right like looking at sites looking at things like how do they say things does it resonate with you like what they say you know there's a lot of like even integration uh, trainings right to do this work it's like how are you moved, right? Are you moved by what you are reading and what you're, what you're, is it opening your heart? Is it, is it tearing your eyes? That's where you go. Beautiful. Well, I love to close with uh, a line from the poet Rilke. He said, try to love the questions and live them now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live your way into the answer. And with that in mind, what is the question that is most alive in your consciousness right now? And what question might you leave our listeners with? Well, what is the question that is more alive? How do we live from a place of curiosity rather than fear? How can we be guided by curiosity rather than fear? Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y. Dot life. Thanks for listening.